0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 50. When I wrapped up the last episode, Noctanebo I, the founder of the 30th dynasty, had just died, and his son, Teos, who had spent the last three years as his co regent, was taking the throne. So I'll begin this episode with Teos, and with that, let's get started. Having witnessed his father beating back the Persians, Teos yearned for military glory of his own. Soon after taking the throne as sole ruler, he began to plan a military expedition into the Levant and Phoenicia, two former countries that were then controlled by Persia. And keep in mind that this was also the territory occupied by the Hebrews. Thinking back to his father, who, after ousting the invading Persians, set about seeding discord into the Persian Empire. And the seeds he planted had germinated, and were now in full blossom. While the Persians were dealing with riots in Anatolia, Teos reached out to his Spartan and Athenian allies for troops and ships. They would send an unspecified number of troopers and 200 warships, but it came at a financial cost mercenaries, not friends. Teos had to raise money to pay the Greeks, and he did so via taxes, along with seizing goods from temples. The work his father had done in reforming the temples and legitimizing the independence of the religion was now lost. All of this combined to drive the support of the people from their dear leader. And you must know that even in a dictatorship, the leader still needs the support of the populace, but the pharaoh was not going to let a thing like the will of the people get in the way of his grand military plans. The Greek general Shabrius assumed command over the fleet of warships. I wonder if he changed his title to admiral. A Spartan general, Achesilaus, assumed the role of the commander of the Greek mercenaries. Théo's nephew, Nocthorreb, remember that name, would be the commander of the Egyptian troops. Thaos himself joined the expedition as its supreme commander. He would leave his brother, Chahapaimu, who was also the father of General Nocthorab, in charge of Egypt as his regent while he was away. Cue the ominous music. With their roles clearly established, the fleet, along with the land-based troops, made their departure for Phoenicia. Unfortunately, and unknown to Theos, his brother was plotting against him, taking advantage of the departing pharaoh's lack of popularity, along with the support of the priestly class, whose temples the pharaoh had just robbed. Japaimu convinced his son, Naktoreb, to rebel against Theos and then declare himself pharaoh. Naktoreb attempted to persuade the Spartan general Achesilaeus to join his side and the Egyptian probably didn't think this sales pitch would be difficult, since Theos and the Spartan commander had been bickering for a while. But, the Spartan general said he was sent to aid Egypt, not to wage war against it. So, he left for home, as did the Greek admiral Shabrius, who returned home with his mercenaries. And with their departure, the plan may not have worked as designed. But Theos was left alone, with no support. Noctoreb was accepted by the people as their new leader. He would change his name to Nectanebo II. As for Theos, he would flee to the Persian capital of Susa, to the royal court of the enemy he was going to attack. That's how desperate he was. And you have to wonder how that worked out. Well, I'm not going to leave you hanging. A physician who was on the Egyptian military expedition was sent by the new pharaoh to Susa to meet with Artaxerxes II. The doctor convinced the Persian ruler to exile the deposed pharaoh back to his homeland. Artaxerxes agreed, and Thaos was returned to Egypt as a prisoner in chains. After his return, he disappears from history. Noctanebo, now the pharaoh, would contend with an unnamed pretender from Mendes, who would declare himself pharaoh. This unknown usurper of the usurper may have been a descendant of Nephrites I. In a town on the Nile Delta, Noctanebo's troops, along with Achesilaus, who was now back, were surrounded by the usurper who was bolstered by many citizens sympathetic to his cause. But... And especially true when everyone is equipped with the same weapons, there's no replacement for sheer numbers. Except when your troops are better trained and more disciplined. Noctanebo and his compatriots won out. This revolt was quelled in the fall of 360 BC. Noctanebo knew he had an incalculable debt to Achesilaus and sent him 220 talents of gold, hoping that would suffice. I'm sure the Greek didn't turn it down. And with that victory, Number no. Two would seize control of Egypt in 360 BC, and when he was only about 20 years old, domestically, while he was on the throne, Egypt prospered. This is evident through the many temples and monuments that bear his name, including a giant temple to Isis, and no, not the modern group that bears the same name. The volume and quality of the works had been unseen in the formerly great empire since the new kingdom. Religion was an important aspect to his domestic policy, as it was the priest who helped him gain power. He began his reign by presiding over the funeral of the Apis Bull in Memphis. And every time I hear of the importance of this religious bovine, I can't help to draw parallels to the golden calf. During the first part of his rule, he was successful in keeping Egypt safe from the Persians. They would try to invade in his fifth year, so 385 BC, again two years later, and then again in 373 BC, again and again and again. In between the invasion attempts, he would supplement his military with Greek mercenaries. In 345 BC, Noctanebo supported the Phoenician rebellion against the Persians, going as far as sending 4,000 of his Greek mercenaries, led by a general known as the Mentor of Rhodes, an extremely memorable name. Think of it as ancient branding. But then the Mentor was told that the Persians, this time led by their soon-to-be new king, Artaxerxes III, were approaching with a superior force. Since he was a mercenary, he had no loyalties, The mentor opened lines of communication with the Persians. At the same time, Artaxerxes was working with his diplomats. In 344 BC, his ambassadors arrived in Greece, asking for the Greeks' participation in a campaign against Egypt. Athens and Sparta listened, but didn't agree to take their side. Other cities did agree to support the Persians. In the beginning of the next year, While it was still winter, Artaxerxes began the march towards Egypt. Not only did he wish to reclaim the territory once controlled by the empire, but he also was more than a little angry with the Egyptians for supporting the rebellions in Phoenicia. There was a speed bump along the way, as he had to put a stop to revolt in Phoenicia. And with that rebellion put down, he was back on the road to Egypt. In 343 BC, Artaxerxes departed with 330,000 Persians, and his force was supplemented by 14,000 Greeks, mostly from the Greek cities of Asia Minor. Of this number were 4,000 under Mentor, which were the troops which he had brought to the aid of Tinnus from Egypt. And Mentor, who remember was once part of the Egyptian contingent, provided something else. He was also armed with an intimate knowledge of the Egyptian fortifications. Another Greek force of 3,000 was sent by Argos, and 1,000 heavily armored soldiers from Thebes. Artaxerxes divided the troops into three regiments and placed at the head of each a Persian and a Greek. The Greek commanders were Lacratus of Thebes, Mentor from Rhodes, and Nicostratus from Argos, while the Persians were led by Rassassis, Aristazanes, and Bagoas, the chief of the eunuchs. And in that is another potential topic for another day, if I figure out how to thread that needle. The Egyptian army, with the pharaoh at its head, numbered 60,000 Egyptians, 20,000 Libyans, and probably 20,000 Greek mercenaries, and the Egyptians in total were outnumbered by the Persians 3 to 1. Also of note were Greeks fighting Greeks, hired bows and chariots on both sides. In supplementing the Egyptian troops were flat-bottomed boats designed and deployed to prevent an enemy from entering the Nile mouths. Guarding the land route and the coast were fortifications and entrenched camps. The Egyptians were as ready as they could have been, Noctanebo occupied the Nile and the various branches with his large navy, and the lay of the land was to his advantage with numerous canals along with strongly fortified towns. But he had a distinct disadvantage. The Persians and company were experienced, vastly more experienced than the Egyptians, The pharaoh lacked any good generals and appears to have been overconfident in his leadership abilities. This would become clear in the fighting where the Persians would constantly outflank and outmaneuver his army, and the Egyptians would quickly be defeated in Lower Egypt. After his defeat, Noctanebo hastily fled to Memphis, leaving the fortified towns of Lower Egypt to be defended by their own troops. These small forces consisted of partly Greek and partly Egyptian troops, and the Persians took advantage of their mixed nationalities, sowing discord in the Egyptian ranks. The discord, along with the Persian military prowess and superior troop numbers, allowed them to easily defeat the many towns across Lower Egypt. As they did, the Persians rapidly made their way towards Memphis. With Artaxerxes approaching towards Memphis, Noctanebo could sense the end was near. He chose to abandon the country and flee south towards Nubia. What a turn of events. The exiled defeated Egyptian pharaohs seeking asylum in Nubia, the kingdom of Cush. And, now leaderless, the Egyptians were defeated. And in the summer of 342 BC, Artaxerxes would enter Memphis and install the Persians' latest iteration of a satrap. With Nectanebo fleeing to Cush, all of Egypt submitted to Artaxerxes. The Hebrews in Egypt were sent either to Babylon or to the south coast of the Caspian Sea, the same location that the rebellious Hebrews of Phoenicia had been sent earlier. After this victory over the Egyptians in Memphis, Artaxerxes had the city walls destroyed and started what has been described as a reign of terror. No one was exempt, as he even looted the temples, and this looting was with a very specific reason. Persia gained a significant amount of wealth. After all, a golden calf is worth its weight in gold. Artaxerxes also implemented high taxes and attempted to weaken Egypt enough that it could never revolt against Persia. I think we've seen this tactic before which is another way of saying, again. For the next ten years, Persia controlled Egypt. Before he would return to his homeland, Artaxerxes appointed Verenidares as satrap of Egypt. With the wealth gained from his reconquering this old land and former empire, Artaxerxes was able to liberally compensate his mercenaries. He then returned to his capital, having successfully completed his revenge invasion of Egypt. Nakanebo would live in Nubia in exile. He would later make a failed attempt to regain the throne. More on that in a minute. What happened to him after that has been lost to history. He would end up being the last native ruler of ancient Egypt. Finally, with his exile came the end of the 30th dynasty and the beginning of the 31st a Persian dynasty, again. Before moving on, one more historical tidbit. There is an apocryphal tale that Noctanebo was the father of Alexander the Great, instead of Philip of Macedon. The story is interesting, but perhaps a bit too lurid for this podcast. If you're inclined, feel free to look it up. Not that you need my permission. To the Egyptians, they tended to like the story, most probably because of his conquering the Persians, but also because Alexander would end up conquering parts of Egypt. And they would like to think that their new fearless leader was at least part Egyptian. And that gets me to the 31st Dynasty, which saw the reemergence of the Persians with control over Egypt. With his victory, Artaxerxes III became the first pharaoh of the 31st Dynasty. I know we've skipped over some Persian history, so I'll spend a minute catching up. When we last touched on them, Artaxerxes II was ruling the empire, and Artaxerxes 3 wasn't the heir apparent, as he had had several older brothers. But, one would be executed, another would commit suicide, and yet another murdered. Eventually, his father would die, and he was the next man standing. When number three took power, he was evidently concerned for his own fate, so in order to cement his rule, and likely to ensure he too was not murdered, he went on the offensive and had all of the royal family murdered, over 80 relatives dispatched. That's certainly one way to add a little security while building an intimidating reputation. These Persians are perhaps the most violent regime we've run across to date, at least of those we know some details of. We now know how the Persians got back to Egypt, but what I haven't covered is that there was a new competing power in the region. This one being led by Philip of Macedon, and that's the same one I mentioned just a minute ago, who was the likely father of Alexander the Great. And Artaxerxes and Philip would oppose each other in almost everything they did. More on this rising power in the next episode. Like I said a minute ago, Artaxerxes would become the first pharaoh of the 31st dynasty, which is sometimes referred to as the second Egyptian satrapy, for obvious reasons. Of course, the first satrapy was the 27th dynasty, which ended about 60 years earlier. While the Persians were in control, an obscure person named Kababasha proclaimed himself king and led a rebellion against the Persians from about 338 to 335 BC. From what we can gather from the few texts that mention him, he was from Sais, and other than his leading the revolt, that's about it. And his being from Sais certainly would make sense, as that was the home of many of the recently former pharaohs. What he did, and how successful it was, is unclear. Also, there is another record that seems to indicate he may have led an invasion into Nubia, but was quickly defeated by King Nastasin. And this event has some legitimacy, as it's recorded on a stele, and even indicates the invasion occurred during his second year. But that's it for him, and other than this, the Persians do not appear to have lost control of the country during the period, So, it's clear that whatever insurrection there may have been, it surely was not successful. Egypt would remain under Persian control and therefore in the territory of Artaxerxes. After his success in recapturing Egypt, he returned to Persia and spent the next few years successfully quelling insurrections in various parts of the empire. In only a few years, he would have the entire empire safely under his control. Mentor and Bagoas the two generals who helped lead Persia to victory in the Egyptian war, were promoted to high positions within the military. Mentor would become the governor of the entire Asiatic coast of the Mediterranean. In this position, he was able to reduce instances of rebellion from the many local leaders, a problem that had plagued the Persians for generations. Bagoas would accompany Artaxerxes back to Persia, where he was a leader in the internal administration, also assisting in promoting the domestic tranquility. The strength of the empire grew, while that of the formerly powerful Greek city-state of Athens declined. But not all of Greece was in decline. Macedon was growing in importance, and Artaxerxes took note, and attempted to stunt their growth before it could become a threat. In 340 BC, Persian force was sent to assist a Thracian prince in his efforts to maintain independence from Macedonia, who were laying siege to that city-state. In this effort, the Persians were successful in breaking the siege, so the Macedonians were sent home. But they weren't going to give up easily. By the last year of Artaxerxes' rule, Philip of Macedon had plans in place for an invasion of the Persian Empire but could not convince the other Greek leaders to join him. The outcome of those plans will have to wait until next week's episode. Artaxerxes would rule for another six years. In 338 BC, according to the Greek historian Diodorus of Sicily, Artaxerxes was poisoned by Bagoes, the general from the Egyptian campaign, who conspired with a doctor. But this tale may be a little tall, as a cuneiform tablet in the British Museum claims that Artaxerxes died from natural causes. Either way, he was gone, and just in time, as Alexander wasn't too far off. Egypt would remain part of the Persian Empire until Alexander the Great's conquest of the land around the Nile. That, too, will be part of the next episode. Before signing off, I must mention that some biblical researchers believe that the Old Testament Tutoral canonical book of Judith, may have been based on Artaxerxes' campaign in Phoenicia. And, if you can't find this book in your version of the Bible, do know that it's included in both the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christian Old Testament, but excluded from Jewish text and assigned by Protestants to the Apocrypha. And that's not the only place he's found. Part of Xerxes III may also be one and the same as Ahasuerus, who was mentioned in the book of Esther. But then again, this mention may be referring to Xerxes I, like I covered a couple episodes ago, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover Egypt's transition from Persian to Greek rule. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.